My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Man. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the post cred Pod. We had uh, Memorial Day. We, you know, we had some crazy schedule mix-up, but we are back here to deliver all the great insight, breakdowns, you know, bullshit opinions, hits bong theories, all that good stuff that you have come to hopefully love and enjoy about the post grand And podcasters need time off too, you know? It's true, man. We, we need our TLC. And We're Eric, only I just new- want to announce to everyone, he just moved into an awesome new apartment. He needed time to move in. I needed time to do true. nothing and sit on the couch. That's exactly what I did. I took two days off just to sit around. <laughs> Well, listen, it's necessary. Self-care. And just, and, just, and, just, and, and just bask in the glow of my new crib. It is very cool, guys. You guys can't see because you're not on the Zoom with us, but I can see. He just gave me the quick little tour. It's very dope. Our, our little Eric Italiano is growing up. He's an adult now. He's moved out on his own. No more roommates. It's a, it's a bittersweet transition. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But now I've got the whole place to pod, so I could be as loud as I want. This is fuck good. y'all. You see? <laughs> and I am sure that you will take full advantage of that as we jump into our next essentially month plus long segment, and that is the arrival of Loki. Probably, if you ask the everyday average MCU fan, one of the most anticipated Disney Plus Marvel series finally arrived now we got the first two screeners as critics we'll be talking about the pilot episode which will two out of six right there's there's six total okay six episodes just like the falcon and the winter soldier so you know we we have a little bit more insight but don't worry we will not be giving any spoilers for episode two this is just an episode one talk today before we jump into that of course let's hit some of the trending news to start some big potential news obviously we don't know but an unconfirmed report from Illuminarity, which has gotten some scoops right in the past and which has gotten some scoops wrong, just like a lot of us, that Namor will be in Black Panther Wakanda forever, as played by Tanakh Huerta. And I apologize for butchering that, which I definitely am. Uh, now, Eric, I don't know about you. I don't know much about Namor, but all of my Marvel friends have been like, this is a huge character. Like, we've been waiting for him forever. It's a big deal to people in the know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious comp is that he's pretty much Marvel's Aquaman, you know, to the extent that he carries a trident as well. Now, this is classic. And he's from Atlantis, correct? Marvel's Atlantis. Yes. And now this is classic MCU, you know, five steps ahead of the game. People are connecting the dots to the scene in Endgame where Okoye, I think I'm saying that right, Yeah. when they're like meeting at Avengers HQ and Natasha is like, leading the talk and uh okoye says like we heard like an earthquake in like middle of the ocean and uh and then black widow was like and what did y'all do about it and she's like nothing it's an earthquake in the ocean (laughs) but a given um you know the type of power that that would take you would assume that there could be somebody super powered behind it. And B, the fact that that line was said by a Black Panther character. And now Namor is being rumored to debut in Black Panther 2. You know, that is sort of what makes me think that this is a legit report. Because I had been hearing Namor was going to debut in the show like last year. Right? I think they, they're pretty much only confirming the casting at this point. But in terms of like word on the street. I've been hearing this for some time now, for sure. So somebody out there is going to have to fact check me. I believe when Endgame came out and that theory about the earthquake started, I believe one of the producers came out and shot it down and said it was just like, we just needed a disaster. But, but as we look, one, someone needs to fact check me because I'm not a hundred percent on that. And two, as we saw with the little kid in Iron Man two, who ended up being Tom Holland, they love to retroactively go back and be like, oh, yeah, we knew this all the time. Yeah, Which, yeah, yeah. Fine. That's totally fair. And this would be a golden opportunity for them to interconnect it. So well, I, this, I'm fine with that. I'm going to I'm gonna discuss a line like this that said in Loki that I wrote down, it feels too intentional to just be random. And that feels like the case here. They could try to lie through their teeth all they want. Yeah, agreed. But it, it, it just felt too specific in terms of A, like the power scale, you know what I mean? Like, like an earthquake in the middle of the ocean. Like think of all the millions of things that they could have said. Yeah. And they go with earthquake in the ocean. <laughs> um, and then the actual physical locale. 
again, I would need to be fact-checked here, but as far as I know, Atlantis is off of the coast of Marvel's Africa type type thing. So it would be geographically near nearby. So the pieces of the puzzle fit into place whether or not it was intentional. And it very well could have been. They could have just been lying. So we'll, we'll have to see. We'll update you guys as we hear more and everything. But yeah, Namor, very and as big as for who they deal. cast, you guys know him from Narcos, Mexico. He's the guy who plays, I mean, this is not very narrowed down, but the guy who seems like he's always high on coke. <laughs> Which is basically the entire show. <laughs> about but, um, the show about Coke dealers. Yeah, but uh, he he's he's pretty fucking scary in that. And just Namor's general vibe, and this is a total guess. I don't know anything about him, but he looks to be a darker hero. I mean, like I Google this, the first photo. I think he went he, from villain to anti-hero, I think. Is the first photo you find of him on Google, he looks like he should be in the band My Chemical Romance. Like this doesn't look like a traditionally... <laughs> Uh, suited and booted superhero. All right. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how this progresses. Could be potentially huge for the MCU, but we will see. Uh, next up, Cruella sequel is officially in development for Disney+. Plus. You and I both liked it. You and I both thought it was one of the better live-action reimaginings. Uh, I think Scott Mendelson, who is the box office reporter for Forbes, said it well in that when you look at the, the money and everything and the Disney Plus equation... Cruella was a successful disappointment, which I thought was a unique but insightful term. So, listen, I, I off the, off the top of my head, I thought the sequel to a Cruella prequel would be a 101 Dalmatians. Apparently, Disney has other plans, but like I'm fine with that. You know, I, I would return to this world, especially if it's a Disney Plus exclusive. Yeah, well, getting the creatives involved with the very good first one is key. But I do yeah, think yeah. that this is where we wade into the very territory that we found detracts from the other original Disney IP films and that they're just blatant cash grabs. Cruella was also that, but at least it had, and I, and I spoke to Mark Strong about it, it had some artistic integrity to it. Once you start throwing out sequels about a story that pretty sure we've already gotten the sequel, as you've just said, you know, now they're inventing a whole new middle cool type, type of film, yeah, you know what I mean? We got to like, brainstorm a catchy name for that. So, you know, again, it, will it undermine my thoughts about the first one? No. But does it worry me that that this is just how they're going to do things now and they're going to granularize? I don't even know if that's a word, but completely strip down every IP they have to the tiniest individual parts and then exploit those parts over and over again. That is obviously not great. Like, why have we not gotten the prequel spinoff of Bambi from the Hunter's perspective, you know? That's clearly next. <laughs> but that's the road, though. But that yeah. that is where this ends. This would see Cruella, like, I'm assuming, like, building her empire, I guess. and yeah. you know, skinning dogs to start. Yeah, so see, I think the fact that the director, writer, and, of course, the star um, are all attached to return obviously bodes well. The best example of this on paper, like the net positive example of this is Lightyear. Right. Isn't that the fact that that's something, a concept and a star and a reimagining of an IP in a way that we find exciting. But that is very often not the case when you do this strategy. But also uh, this is this is more retrofitted than Lightyear is because Lightyear is pretty much Cruella. So this would be them doubling down on it again. So something after Lightyear about like his years in between becoming Buzz and becoming a toy or whatever. (laughs) So I just worry about how parsed down these IPs are going to become and how specific these stories are going to be and how many of them are going to be like, do we get a Cruella spinoff at some point? You know, like these are the sort of questions that are going to be increasingly asked not only is and I think the driving factor of this sort of uh, way of filmmaking that we've been seeing is because the streaming vacuum is demanding to be filled, right? And the only way that they, they know how to fill it is going back to the well over and over again because they sure aren't going to make something new, you know? So They've struggled to make something new. You know, yeah. Lone Ranger, Prince of Persia, John Carter, Tomorrowland, all of their would-be new live-action franchises have yeah. essentially bombed. So that's, that, that leaves them in their homegrown remakes of animated classics and like you said parsing the ip but that's 
modern Hollywood and, and capitalism at play right there. Folks. Right, right. All right, moving on. Mission Impossible 7 has halted production due to COVID. Now, Eric, after Tom Cruise's epic rant earlier this year about COVID protocols, how many crew member souls do you think he consumed as a result of this? <laughs> I, lo- I, I love the way you frame that question. My question is, how the fuck is this movie still filming? What is going on? It's been delayed so many times. It has been filming forever. Yeah, they resumed production last year. Tom Cruise had that meltdown. Um, As far as I know, England doesn't have COVID as under control as we do here right now. But you would still think the middle of summer, they've been in production for, again, for what feels like the last five, five or six months. How this is happening now is sort of beyond me. As for how many souls Tom Cruise has consumed... Which also Man. clearly keeps him eternally youthful because he's essentially been 42 for like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Man, I mean, he, when you hear that video of him going ape shit that first time, it sounded like he'd kill a man. It did. Yeah. It yeah. sounded like this man is, this man is liable to commit murder. Honestly, and- it sounds like he's killed and he'll kill again. <laughs> oh, man. He's like Patrick Bateman, but just an actor. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I would watch that movie actually, or like a Showtime miniseries. Look, yeah, I, I, but to be honest, I honestly can't believe it's been shut down again. They were supposed to be filming this, uh, in concurrence with MI8 as well. Right. And, uh, I think it was supposed to come out later this year. Well, when is MI7 dated for? I can't remember now, but I think originally it was, it was See, supposed F- to come out close to Top Gun Maverick. I think. At MI7 currently has a May 27th, 22 2022 date i don't know how much production they have left but they gotta they gotta wrap shit up before like august really if they're gonna make that date so all right Issa ray is going to voice jessica drew aka spider woman and into the spider-verse sequel yeah great great call great casting can't wait for that movie even though they got new directors it's like you know phil lord phil lord and chris miller are still producing so i'm in 100 percent. but the spider woman we got in the first one was a different spider woman spider gwen she Spider- was Gwen Stacy. Yeah, okay. I actually had to ask that question as well. I wasn't as well versed, and my Marvel friends were like, "Yeah, they're completely different characters." Okay, gotcha. Follow. Yeah. Okay, I'm all on board with that. Oh, speaking of Jessica Drew, rumors that I've been seeing out there from Marvel fandom is that that is who people think Amelia Clark was cast as in that, Secret Invasion. Uh huh. Uh... Because Jessica Drew is a Shield agent in the comics who plays a pivotal role in the secret invasion storyline clark is obviously a big fat name uh despite the bad taste left by game of thrones i would i'd reckon she's the biggest star to come from that show a shout can maybe be made for kit harrington no i'd go madden richard madden i don't think kit i mean kit kit hasn't really done much in in the two years since madden has started he was in bodyguard he's obviously about a star in two eternals point being is Clark is definitely the sort of name that you would want in that role, right? So I would like that. That would be quite cool. Uh, first image from The Flash was released by Andy Muschietti, the director. It is a blood-spattered bat symbol, which is from Michael Keaton's Batman suit from the Tim Burton movies. Listen, while the image was cool and I'm really excited and he confirmed finally Michael Keaton's absolute definitely coming back, it's just so typical of today's landscape that the first official movie from the first ever flash live action film it's a fucking it's a batman. batman symbol like are you kidding me everything has to be batman no one else will buy anything if it's not batman that's a great point um i mean of course i'm hyped you know i don't have the connection to the keaton batman that people who were born in you know 10 years before us might but there's no denying that that icon that iconic symbol and that iconic score you know laid the foundations of my fandom for the character now that said what i've seen out there and what i really liked is have you ever read doomsday clock no okay so doomsday clock is pretty much it's a direct sequel to watchmen that sort of blew the multiverse up and revealed that like dr manhattan was sort of pulling the strings now i'm not saying that does he fight superman in that dr manhattan i i they cross paths in that at some point but people are saying we've been expecting flashpoint when this image is more invoking doomsday clock 
which is also sort of this multiversal reshaping the reality timeline rules type of story. Do you think there's any chance we get like an unexpected Doctor Manhattan as yeah. I mean, how fucking sick would that be? I don't know. It'd be I really think that, cool. But do you think it would be a leap too far for casual yes. fans? They'd be like, who the fuck yeah. are these guys? Yeah. yeah, I do. And I don't think that they're gonna directly adapt either. I think the point to take though is that uh Flashpoint may be an element of this film, but I don't think it's gonna be a you know direct adaptation. And then okay. they're gonna be pulling from stories okay. like Doomsday Clock and and sorts. All right, finally, Christina Ricci has joined the cast of The Matrix 4. And I well, I don't say, know who this is. People never, have been like, oh, Christina, Christina Ricci? From I mean, what? like, I mean, from a million things. But the first thing that comes to my head, my mind, because of um, because of uh, uh, childhood is Casper the Friendly Ghost. She's in a, see, wow, that's, that's way over my head. You never saw Casper the Friendly Ghost? I mean, I'm sure movie. I did. But the fact that you're remembering her from it, Wow. I love Casper as a kid, but okay. But long story short, she's been in a million things. And I just find it so funny that the Matrix 4 has assembled the weirdest cast ever, like the most random cast ever, but I'm 100% here for it. I think it's so fascinating. So in addition to the obvious returns, which is Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, and Jada Pickett-Spith, they also have Priyanka Chopra Jonas. They've got Jessica Henwick. They've got Neil Patrick Harris. They've got Toby uh, on, on Wumer. I apologize if I'm butchering that. Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Jonathan Groff, just like all over the spectrum of yeah. people that like wouldn't necessarily on paper seem to fit in the same movie, but fuck it. This Matrix 4 is clearly just going balls to the wall. And if we're going to have a legacy sequel of a franchise that honestly ended on an awful note, I'd rather them just swing to the fences and be like, screw it. They gave us a chance to come back. We're fucking going for it. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think this is dated for December and it's been, it's been eerily quiet on, on that front. Like I'm surprised casting news is still coming out at this point. I mean, she might've already filmed her scenes and it's just now being like, just oh coming yeah, out. yeah that yeah, happens yeah. a lot. Cause shit, man. I mean, the next Warner bros film coming out, in the Heights this Friday. In the Heights, all right, not that one. So maybe the Suicide Squad, there might be a little teaser attached. I mean. That'd be cool in August, yeah. In August, if they've got The Matrix 4 dated for, I think, December 7th, or no, December 17th. is. I mean, yeah, but home. that's, what is that? That's four December months. December yeah. 16th. So, I mean, they've got to get these wheels turning in terms of the marketing and such. So I wouldn't shock me if we got a first look at it this summer. I, I think uh, the Suicide Squad's a good call for the yeah. first one. Yeah, I um at the start of the pandemic last year, I rewatched these films. It's genuinely remarkable how well the first one holds up. So um, good. So good. It's amazing how underrated the second one is. I think that the second one is actually quite good. There's like an hour straight action scene. <laughs> There's not like from the from when Keanu takes on all those dudes with the swords to when Fishburne is like fighting those two twin ghost guys on the highway on top of the truck. I mean, that's a long fucking sequence and it slaps. I hated it when it came out and I I've, I've grown more fond of it as the years have passed. I don't still like, you know, the, the, the ending scene with the architect still bothers me to no end, but I've come around to being like, yeah, I'll throw, I'll throw that on if I'm in the mood, you know, for sure. But the third one is just pure garbage. Yeah, so so to, to get a proper, I don't know if we could call, call this a send off. I mean, there's a, there's always the chance that they do a fifth one at some point. Who the fuck knows? But to uh, for them to dive back in to the extent where you just said, it seems like they're really just going for it. Yeah. I uh, and, and I feel like it's quiet on the Matrix front right now. But once we get that first look, people are going to be fucking hyped for it. I think so. I think this is one of the legacy sequels that seems safer than some of the others. Yeah, yeah. In terms of like, are people going to show up for it? That's what I mean. Right, yeah. right. Well, and I mean, it's going to be fascinating. This is, so this is supposed to come out December 16th. Warner Bros. and HBO Max said all of their 2021 films would be HBO Max and theaters same day. I'm curious if they're really going to hold fast to that rule by the time that Dune comes out or by the, by the time that this comes out, you know. The well, Matrix Dune is a four. legendary film, which is why it may sneak out. But legally, they can't have say all of our other films are day and date and then change it because then people who did subscribe actually have like grounds for minor lawsuits. Gotcha. So I, I would say 99.9% The Matrix 4 is absolutely locked in as, as a day and date HBO Max. Influence. Wow. Yeah, that, that's 
that's amazing to me. That really is. Crazy. Especially, I mean, we, dude, the world is going to be a different place in six months from now. You know what I mean? Hopefully. So, yeah. All right. Let us now jump into our main topic, which is Loki. We're going to do our patented beat by beat recap of the first episode, and we're going to jump into our awards and categories. But, Eric, before we begin that, I do want to ask you a question to kind of jumpstart the conversation because I think as quote unquote critics or whatever you want to call it, we do have a unique perspective because we get bunches of episodes all at once for all these Marvel series. So I want to ask you, what do you think of the first batch of episodes of Loki in comparison to the first batch we received for WandaVision and the Falcon and the Winter Soldier? And, well, think, and to try to divorce yourself from the fact that we've finished two of those shows. Yeah, well, and that's I've said on this podcast a few times, it's tough to judge these shows until you've seen the whole product, right? Combine that with the fact that the thirst for not only MCU content, but blockbuster content in general when WandaVision dropped was at an all-time high. I mean, we, you know, MCU alone, we hadn't gotten a new project in 18 months and Hollywood in general was shut down. So it's difficult for me to compare how I was feeling then and how I was feeling now. That's fair. It's also difficult for me to remove the fact that I've been open about that this is the show that I've been most hyped for. I would imagine that's the case widespread. I would argue Loki is the most popular character to have his own show yet. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. So trying to remove all of those extenuating factors from my vacuum and then uh deciphering the actual quality of the pilot that will should we be talking about our thought our thoughts of the first two that we've seen or just so without without spoilers this question is the only time where i i am bringing in episode two into my answer i'm not going to get in any specifics or anything but it's just my overview okay so and for me and i do think this would have to and this would also be factored by having to wait a week to watch it you know what i mean like when i'm watching them back and forth it doesn't feel like two shows it feels like one that i've just banged out I think that the pilot itself was a brilliant conceit in terms of of how to get the audience and the characters in universe up to speed with not only all the multiversal jargon that they're going to be throwing at us in this show, which is a lot, everybody, but for but for the foreseeable future. Right. Yeah. And so putting a character who is whose sort of M.O. was being one or two steps ahead putting him on even par with us and having us experience the, uh, what's the word? Um, Confusion, overwhelming. Yeah, just, yeah, just the complete sense of like, he's lost at sea, right? He's got no bearings. He doesn't know what way is north at this point. I found that, I found that to be a, if not viscerally entertaining, intellectually so. I had seen complaints that episode one was poorly paced and poorly written. I don't, I don't really find those to be valid i don't know how else they people were expecting marvel to upload all of this multiversal knowledge to us but then episode two on the back of episode one is less rule explaining and more living within the confines of these rules and trying to operate in this world and together as a whole package I, i thought it was the strongest mcu series start yet now that said when people watch episode one this week you know, they may be like, that was a lot of dialogue and nothing happened. So, <laughs> so I could so I could see the complaints having only seen episode one. But what I will right. tell you now is that episode one is a necessary stepping stone to, again, not just the series, but as but the future of the MCU as a whole. And in that regard, I thought it was wildly successful. Yeah. So more or less, I'm, I'm on the same page. I really, really, really like Loki to start first two episodes. Here, here's just something I want to point out. It's not necessarily a, a criticism. It's a bit of an observation. WandaVision was doing something totally different from anything that came before in the MCU. Uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But is this need- not as well? I don't mean to cut you up, but isn't this also doing that? Not yet, in my opinion. I, I think tonally, yes, and, and I will get to that later in this pod. But in terms of early on, you know, I, let's let's be real. I mean, no no other MCU feature has been as weird and and obtuse as WandaVision, which was gotcha. for okay. the first couple of episodes we were in different sitcoms and like we didn't yeah. know what the fuck was going on. Right, facts. Um, okay. Yeah, and, and in conjunction, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier immediately carved out space for contemporary themes of race and legacy. I think both shows from the beginning 
had something very clear to say. And I think Loki may be more purely enjoyable than both to start, thanks to great dialogue, fast paced, lots of quips and gags, multiverse timeline shenanigans. But it isn't necessarily designed, at least in the early going, in the first two episodes, to have some grand unifying thematic message. You know, I'm not sure what it's necessarily trying to say or if it has something I to say. I think it's saying that we're powerless. I think that that's, I, I mean, I that, think that, 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 that even gods could feel like men in the wrong room. I, I think they've briefly set up the idea of not only free will plus determinism, like you just mentioned, also the idea of identity and self by having Loki reassess his past motivations and choices and actions. I just hope we get a little bit more of that emotional honesty and that self-reflection character-wise to provide uh, this kind of thematic meat. But overall, it is really good. I'm going to get into the specifics here, but I'm just trying to weigh, okay, first batch of episodes of all three as I create my own little Marvel hierarchy. And so I think that's where I'm, I'm like pros and cons. Yeah. But it's, that's what makes it interesting too. All right, but let us hop in to our, our recap now. Uh, Loki opens with the Stark Tower scene from Avengers 2012 and Avengers Endgame because obviously there was some timeline shenanigans And it's going funny on. because now, and it's only been a few years, but now to me, Tony Stark officially feels like an old MCU head. You know what I mean? Jesus, like it, that's well said and crazy. Like it, it doesn't feel like he's a current part of the story. Iron Man now very much feels like phase one, like a lifetime ago, you know? absolutely crazy and totally right um so we, we start there we pick up with loki who recently escaped with the tesseract this is 2012 avengers loki who escaped with the tesseract and was tra transported into the middle of the mongolian desert of course some some settlers or, or, or wanderers come across him and the god of mischief just as immediately on brand begins to launch into his trademark loki speech about being burdened with glorious purpose before the tv show up reprioritize our understanding of the power scale in this new series. Uh, Eric, you know, I'll get more into it a little bit later, but Marvel, both for better and worse, loves to look both backward and inward. And I think while that can be rewarding, <clears throat> that can be a rewarding trip down memory lane for Marvel mentees such as you and I, it can also be very alienating and insular of a journey for casual fans who may not be as up to snuff as we right. are. But as we are not casual fans, I, of course, enjoyed seeing familiar MCU moments from a different perspective, which is something that carries through this entire episode. And this is sort of why I brought up before about how the themes of this show could are sort of reprioritizing or reshaping our understanding of what's powerful in the MCU. Because within two minutes, Loki is made a fool of. You know, he is he is completely lapped by what looks to be just a standard TVA cop. You know, she, she doesn't seem like she has any sort of powers beyond the fact that she's part of the TVA. But in that moment, immediately, Loki, as we recall, was the Avengers number one threat back then. You know what I mean? They were, they were, they were all hands on deck to deal with this guy. And now she shows up with her little baton, smacks him in the face, and he's got no move. Which, by the way, was just a creative and humorous uh, little like fight move, you know, yeah. where he's frozen in time and we're all, you know, completely fine. He's just like, no. And, yeah. And they don't, they, they wait a beat for the reveal that it's not really slow-mo and that yeah. he's in slow-mo. And I thought that was funny, but I, I, I thought right off the bat, that was sort of a good way to prepare us for what, for how fish out of water this series, or at least this pilot, is going to be. Yes. And then Loki, as we just mentioned, he's apprehended and taken to TVA HQ, where he's given basically a crash course in these new multiverse rules. He with and us. You know, yes, that's really yes. why it's there, right? Yeah. The, the, as you said, episode one is exposition heavy. I think for the most part, the exposition is delivered creatively and entertainingly, right? for the most part. Well, um, yeah, Miss Minutes explains the timekeepers and the sacred timeline, which is essentially hey, in a very schoolhouse rock esque video. That which which I was going to mention later, but I'm going to mention now. That's a complete and utter rip off of Jurassic Park. Oh, really? Yeah the the video the cartoon video explaining as exposition. I liked it, but this was less homage and more just like we're going to rip that off. Wait, but did you have Schoolhouse Rock? Yeah, of as course. A kid? 
conjunction junction what's yes. your i'm function? just a bill yes i'm only a <laughs> yeah. pill and i'm sitting here oh, yeah so that's what i thought yeah. of too so it is cool yeah. so she explains the timekeepers in the sacred timeline and essentially what it means is there's all these diverging timelines all at once and the timekeepers decree what is the main priority you know timeline prime and it's up to the tva to make sure we stay on that course and we don't deviate from that uh eric so one of which whole- being kang Yes, we we get our first look at a sort of a cartoon Kang. That's what it seemed like to me. And I mean, I'm not sure if Kang is a timekeeper. I'm not sure if he's threatening the timekeepers, but I got to believe that's coming. And as we've discussed on this, uh, you know, this pod before, we have heard lots and lots and lots of of rumors from industry sources that Kang, either in in concept or physical form, will be making appearance, you know, in Loki. So they probably setting that up, but, but Eric, what I did like about this exposition dump here, deep dive diehards are going to have a field day with the TVA's new rules and regulations and the implications for the MCU at large. You know, this is our jam. Well, I actually have a very cool fact about this little brief scene that I was going to save for later, but I'll bring up now. So when they're explaining how they're at the dawn of time, there were X amount of timelines and they were, quote, in a multiversal war. Writer Michael Waldron was asked if that is a hint at Secret Wars, and he didn't say no. What's Secret Wars again? Secret Wars is not Secret Invasion. Secret Wars is essentially like this all-powerful being called the Beyonder. Oh, I know the Beyonder. Okay. Zapped yeah, yeah. a bunch of Marvel heroes and villains to a planet yeah. called Battleworld, where they all fought each other. Now, obviously, that's not a direct comp, but the idea of like multiple timelines battling each other is Secret Wars-esque. And when asked about it in an interview with Murphy's Multiverse, he was asked if that was a tie-in and he said quote we'll see you'll probably know as well as i do not everything is just there if the purpose of that whole thing was just to indoctrinate the audience and everything yeah we'll see how this plays out in the mcu going forward so as you kind of said before marvel loves to like retroactively be like we put that in there we told you it was coming (laughs) but even before reading this quote when i saw that and just the way that they just the, the the key phrase of multiversal war really perked up my ears. That would be very cool. And whether or not it is, that remains to be seen. But that is a potentially very, very interesting connection. All right. So meanwhile, we are introduced to Owen Wilson's agent Mobius, who finds himself investigating a crime committed by the devil, says a young witness in 1549 France. Uh, Owen Wilson just phenomenal pitch in this perfect. show like yeah. shockingly good pitch pitch perfect and i had put out in a tweet that and this is his mo in general he's able to be matter of fact without sounding terse you know what i mean like he's definitely able, he's able to you know some people are offended by the truth right the truth could be a very sharp weapon to wield but Wilson's general demeanor and line readings, he's able to deliver these facts and observations about Loki and the world around them that would usually come off as rude or <laughs> offensive. But because it's him, you buy his sincerity. You know, he said he says at some point, he's like, I want to understand you. And I fucking believed him. Like, I didn't think he was like trolling him or anything. I no. genuinely believed him. Yeah. I think particularly in episode two, in the early going, the dynamic between Mobius and Loki is the strongest element thus far. And, and just as you said, there's something just like, oh, wow, time travel, me and Loki. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's just like wonderful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm Owen Wilson. Well, and that's uh, the thing. It's right. It's the disarming nature of his presence that is the vehicle for this very high concept multiversal language to be delivered in a format that we understand you know he is the one who is explain outside of miss minutes he's the one who is explaining how this world works now the timelines work and variants and the nexus points and all that shit so i you know and, and he does not have an easy role here he has to deliver like you just said heavy lifting exposition and yet and i'll get to this later but and yet 
their conversations and back and forth are so kind of rippling with energy and humor that it really feels organic, entertaining. I I was involved. It wasn't just like so much information. I can't, you know, handle it. I would, I would love to know at exactly what stage they decided they were going to try to cast him. Like, did they write the character? Like, cause the, the casting feels so pitch perfect that you, which has if been somebody, Marvel's like strongest uh, attribute, I think, from day one. Casting. Yeah, yeah. And to the extent that if they told me that they wrote the role for him, I'd be like, sure, I totally buy yep. it. So yep. I'm very curious as or if they wrote the whole character and then had like a aha moment where they were like, oh, Owen Wilson, you know? Oh, he is. Love. He is outside of I think outside of the MCU ness of it all, the Loki and the multiverse and what this means for the franchise going forward. He is the most fun part of, of the show. It's great. Now Loki begins to stand trial for his crimes against the sacred timeline when Agent Mobius interrupts the proceeding, telling the judge he could use Loki's help. Mobius then takes Loki to a private room where he shows him key events from Loki's life. So killing Agent Coulson in 2012, the Avengers, the the attack on New York, his mother Frigga's death, uh, you know, a lot of other big moments in the MCU. And he questions him and his purpose. And here, Eric, to me, is where we begin to plant the seeds of Loki's focus on identity and self. You know, from this point on, he is forced to kind of reckon with his own actions and being and start to essentially decide you know am i going to be a hero a villain what what am i who am i and yeah. who have i been i think this was a very creative way to loki has undergone him and thor really have undergone yeah. some of the most legitimate character development in the mcu over the last 10 years or so but his bringing the timeline back to endgame effectively washed that all away so by having him, he does it twice. He relives these moments that... Which again, like I said before, I, because we're deep dive hardcore Marvel fans, I love seeing these moments from a different perspective. If you're someone who's only seen like half the Marvel <laughs> stuff, you're going to be like, what the fuck is going on? I've never finished Thor The Dark World. I oh my God, I did not. I didn't know he was like the cause of his mom's death. I was like, damn, dude, it's a fucking dick move. Um, there, um, you got you got at least to finish it to just be like, oh, I am a complete Marvel fan. Uh, but um, the point that I, I mean, was it's terrible. To, the point that I was trying to make is so he relives his past twice, right? It's when mm-hmm. Wilson shows it to him, and then later he goes and does it himself. And I found this to be a creative way to essentially band aid over or rebuild the character development that was taken away from us. So while he may not be, that's the a good same, point. So while he may not be the same Loki that we grew to love, he's now downloaded all of the experiences of that person and therefore is sort of in like the, uh, the is a bridge the right word? He's sort of like the diet version of the Loki we, we've come to know and love. Perhaps not the same, but they've added enough ingredients that it's close enough. The reason why memory is so important is because memories tell us who we are and it's what enables us to learn from what we've done in our life, both good and bad. And so for him to basically receive, download, yes, the great term for it, the memories of our prime Loki, it's a catalyst, a necessary catalyst for him to be an interesting, compelling character capable of change. Absolutely. Because if you think about when that character has been his most compelling, you know, like I look back at uh avengers one and thor and i'm like you know he's only a good villain because the mcu's villains kind of suck it was hiddleston's great yeah right of course it wasn't until like i i guess thor the dark world and (laughs) and ragnarok and infinity war where he becomes more 3d and sort of a genuine anti-hero and that's important because that's the version of the character that we all root for nobody's gonna sit through a six episode show with the old douchebag version we want the one that we've that's grown up alongside of us and that is what these scenes sort of did we need the tantalizing prospect of redemption to keep us on board all right so loki briefly escapes and he gives the tva the runaround within their headquarters before eventually realizing by by way of coming across a drawer full of unused and powerless infinity stones that he is essentially Nothing against the TVA. The most powerful 
objects of his desire in, in of our known universe do nothing in the TVA. And he even says as much, is this the greatest power in the universe? You just brought up a great line. And this is what I think is one of the show's strengths, right? Think about all the storytelling yeah. elements that they've weaved in here. They've got this sort of sci-fi lore of the stones, right? They've got the humor of it just being a drawer full of them. Just they're, here they are right And then there. fucking interns, like some guys use them for paperweights. paperweights. <laughs> so they've got the sci-fi lore, they've got comedy, and then they've got the dramatic sort of gut punch of Loki. You know, you see his face not, not go white, but like he, in that moment, and then he looks up at the screen and he's like, is this the greatest power? So- they're doing a lot of, and this is the strength of the character himself because he is able to wear more than one mask and more than one face. They're weaving in three different types of beats here in one moment. And I found this to, I found this to be a really, really strong part. May I respectfully add one more beat to the table? It is actually, I would say, a fourth one for us, the audience. For 10 years, the Infinity Saga was the main story. We were told in every movie that the Infinity Stones are the most powerful things in the universe. And now in one fell swoop, they have completely reset the table, necessarily so. So the new saga, the new phase four and beyond can essentially renew and then meet audience expectations, which I think is a subtly brilliant little twist. Yeah. Like, oh, we're on some other shit now, everybody. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. Great call, actually, because you would wonder at some point, why doesn't Doctor Strange just time stone this whole mess. You know what I mean? So it gives you sort of a new playing ground as to where, exactly. where this game that the MCU is going to be played in the next five, 10 years. And it's exciting. You know, I'm, I'm excited seeing that as a fan. Like, wow, we thought we knew so much. We don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> and right, that's so what makes Kang a real threat, right? Oh, yeah. You know that his TVA powers are significantly more power than powerful than these stones. So the way in which he wields that is going to be fascinating. I mean, the knowledge he's accumulated, presumably from all of his time, you know, hopping uh, conquests or, or adventures, whatever they decide to do with the character is going to be fascinating. Right, right. Um, okay, so finding himself back in the interrogation room that Moby, Moby has previously brought him to, Loki fires up the memory machine and relives his MCU life as we know it. You know, like we said before, his hand in, in Frigga's death, his eventual bonding with Thor, his death at the hands of Thanos, which really, really gets to him. And I think, Eric, this and the subsequent conversation he has with Mobius, where he really is like, I, I'm the weak one and I, and I act this way because I'm trying to cover my own insecurities. I thought that was the high point of the premiere for me. You know, this iteration of Loki is staring down a reckoning of his own life. And that is so compelling to me, even if we've seen previous versions of the character do something similar, because a lot of what we said, it is the prospect of redemption. It is someone navigating their, their own path to potentially see their flaws and mistakes and trying to do better in some form, potentially. We, we don't know what this Loki is going to get up to, but seeing that realization knock into his core and have him sit on the ground being like, holy shit, that was good for me. Surprised by how emotional this scene was. I also love the tie-in of when he sees himself die at the hand of Thanos, the, uh, like the TVA chick who first brought him in walks in and he laughs. And she's like, what's so funny? And he goes, glorious purpose. You know, it's all full circle for him yeah, in that yeah, moment. Yeah. Yeah. Good writing. Yeah, they're doing a lot. They're doing a lot here. And that's why I think to, to detract from the pilot for pacing or uh, screenplay problems isn't really fair. Because when you consider the amount of thematic plot balls in the air that they have to juggle all at once while also delivering all this new and very heady multiversal stuff, it's no small feat. Rolling Stone's Alan Sepinwall, who for more than a decade has been my favorite television critic, is fond of saying that pilots or premiere episodes are often the worst episodes of, of a show. Just they, they just often are because they have to do so much introduction that, it, it, that the second episode is almost always better. And while, right. that, while that is the case here, I think the second episode is better. I really, really like this first episode. Yeah, I think it, had, it pulled off a high degree of difficulty very well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, realizing he has no choice but to work with the TVA, Mobius tells Loki what he needs his help with, tracking down another, more dangerous Loki variant that's been killing the TVA's Minutemen at various points in the timeline. So, boom, at the end, we get our 
essential crux, the thrust of the series. This is what needs to happen. This is the conflict. This is why you're here. Yeah. And so I like that. So I, to me, that was, that's an interesting overarching narrative, Loki versus Loki. And we'll get into this more next week, but I think one of the more confusing elements of what we've seen so far is what exactly that variant is trying to do. Cause I, I, I don't think that they've shown their cards yet, but if they have, I have not seen them. Right. Um, in the episode two sort of ending set piece, I was like, okay, this is sick, but I am lost right now. So <laughs> going forward, I definitely think fans are going to enjoy the conceit of Loki versus himself. Like that's just a very tried and true story. Like me versus my evil twin. You know what I mean? That's, that is a tale as old as time, but I do. Does think- your evil twin have a goatee? What? Does your evil because you know everybody every evil twin always has a goatee. You kind of have a goatee, so maybe that one's clean shaven. Yeah, yeah, which is horrifying. Trust me. Um, <laughs> um, but I do think that they have some legwork exactly. You know, in the final four to explaining exactly what he wants and how that relates to the timeline and the timekeepers and all that. All that jazz. So before we hop into the awards and categories, I just have two quick questions that are just kind of fun to to bounce around. I was saving one of these points for the stuff we think is cool that needs mentioning, but I'll just say it here. The casual MCU fan may not know that the head writer for Loki, Michael Waldron, is also the screenwriter for Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and has also been tapped to write Kevin Feige's Star Wars movie. So clearly he has oh i didn't know that last part yeah so he is clearly a big voice right now a rising voice in uh disney and also we also had those unconfirmed reports that loki may have a season two so clearly you know whether or not i think i think you know given the way that they set this up as sort of like you know you could just see it right like it would be a buddy cop type procedural law and order type bouncing around the timelines going out to fix things defeat bad guys and stuff i mean of all the shows that they've done so far this one feels the most primed to go beyond season i agree one. so my question is with all with all of that background knowledge do we think they're setting up a direct tie-in to spider-man no way home and or dr yes, strange too yes, yes and the reason that that i say that is because i can't remember i think this is episode one so i'm trying to be careful here it's not really a spoiler i just don't don't want to go too far ahead but they're explaining how if the nexus events pass that red line it will create a multiverse and therefore as they talked about at the top a multiversal war and i think that that is going to be the direct tie-in to spider-man 3 whatever loki does in this series is going to fuck the timeline up beyond belief and by the time we get to no way home that timeline problem is going to be unleashed and that's how we'll get spider-man a b and c and I guess how Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and, and that, Wanda are like, we got to fix this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, and I, and because there's a specific moment where it's like, as the variant lines, I don't know all that. See, I don't even know the fucking terms to use. The vernacular is, is tough. But as like the branch timeline is approaching the red line, it says, warning, multiverse. So like, <laughs> they are very aware of the, like right now, the MCU is not a multiverse. It's a universe. There's only one. But whatever Loki's going to do is going to change that. All right. Now, second question, and this is just kind of a silly, fun one. Loki lost a bet and became D.B. Cooper. What other historical events did he influence throughout you know, human history? And also, my question is, did Loki travel to 19, time travel to 1971 to become D.B. Cooper? Or was that simply the point at which Earth's history was at in that moment of Loki's long lifespan? That's not important. It's just fun to talk about. Yeah, I definitely think it's the latter. I think that like he was just existing at that time. That's what I, I, I presume to think. Because they're thousands of years old, these guys. Yeah. Thor, said, Thor once said, he's like, I've lived for a thousand years and killed twice as much as that. You know, so. Badass line. Yeah, that is a badass line. Um, I don't know. Was he involved with the Knicks drafting Ewing? Like, how deep on the conspiracy scale do we want to go? Do we want to go? J- would I have been surprised if David Stern was in cahoots with Loki? No, I would not have. Been. <laughs> what about right, you? Let's, I, I don't know, but I, I hope there's a few more Earth historical shenanigans where I'm like, oh my God, that famous event that we know of, Loki was there. Like, well, that's there's one fun in, for me. There's another one in episode two but we'll yeah yeah we'll, we'll, we'll say 
Um, all right, let's jump into our awards and categories. Infinity Gauntlet Award for the real MVP. Eric, for me, I'm going with the trifecta of tone, design, and structure. As we kind of have talked great, about throughout this podcast, WandaVision, deliberately obtuse in early episodes with something radically different. Uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, familiar yet very character-centric in early episodes. Loki is intention- intentionally left of center with a screwball, shit-eating grin attitude, and I fucking love it. So yours... It's pretty much just a way, a way more eloquent version of mine. I have the multiverse as a storytelling device. Ah, uh, yes. And even beyond the Spider-Man verse himself type thing, how the TVA is sort of actively working against the multiverse becoming a thing. Like the idea of their goal is to make sure a multiverse doesn't happen is very cool to me. And the way that they've built sort of a scientific system around that, I find that very cool. Then, of course, there's all the added benefits of you get all sorts of types of Loki and all sorts of types of Spider-Man. And if the MCU really leans into this, you know, who knows what this means for the amount of films they'll put out? Like, could we be getting a DCEU-esque, the Batman takes place over here, and the DCU takes place, could they start doing that? So I think as a storytelling construct, both in the micro and macro, it's very exciting. Um, Opens up some possibilities. Yeah, the dialogue in general, but specifically between Mobius and Loki, as I said to you in a text, it's Sorkin-esque, not in terms of content, but in terms of pacing. That sort of back and forth, tit-tat, real quick, real snide type of you think you're smart. I am smart. I know you're smart. Like, yeah, exactly. Great. Ex- exactly, exactly. And then finally, the crime thriller vibe was... It, it, it's a detective story at its, its heart. so cool how they were able, through a combination of lighting, score, plots, to create something that we're familiar with. You know, this has been the MCU's bag, right? Uh, the Winter Soldier is a political thriller and shit like that. But that is really epitomized here in terms of this feeling like a true, you know, a crime thriller without the gore, of course. But in terms (laughs) of just the whole aesthetic of it all, on point. Uh, The Thor The Dark World Award for Worst Performance. I'm going to go with the TVA strike teams getting absolutely worked (laughs) left and right. I mean, they aren't human. They were entities created by the timekeepers for the sole purpose of doing the job they were designed to do. Like, whoops, can't do it. Come on, guys. Yeah, true. I mean, they do son Loki, but that's about it. From, from but he also from, has no idea what he's dealing with. Right, right. From there on out, they're getting dominated. Uh, I'm going with Tom Hiddleston's wig. Um, <laughs> similar to Thor in Ragnarok, I'd love if they could figure out a legitimate storytelling way for him to cut his hair. Like, I'm just tired of that fucking that mess of black hair on his head it just looks absolutely he's a awful. greasy dude it just not looked... how tom hiddleston Loki. no yeah of course just I and mean, maybe that's the point i guess but he would just look much cleaner with a short haircut you know particularly if he's now working for what is essentially bureaucratic cops exactly clean yeah. it up my man yeah. yeah all right the jarvis award for best performance by anyone except the lead actor i mean obvious it's owen wilson who is taking good writing and dialogue and making it even better he is such a perfect semi-straight man to Loki's antics. And I think that grows even further in episode two, which we'll talk about next week, but just oh, on the money. Yep, same here. And I know that this is kind of cheating, but I did just want to give a shout to Hiddleston because similar to what I found about Paul Bettany and WandaVision or Sebastian Stan and Falcon, I think that this series is giving these actors who have been playing a blockbuster popcorn role that's never really confused with dramatic acting but giving them a real chance to explore the character in deeper more meaningful ways yeah he's doing action drama and humor all in this one physical comedy dialogue he's a good performer the the scenes of him reliving his life his smugness being slowly stripped away these shows are giving both the actors and the fans of the characters themselves a chance to explore these people more. I think that's a great thing. I agree. Uh, The Tony Stark Exposition Award, AKA the Star-Lord Who Award for shit we need explained to us. Uh, Again, this isn't super important, but it's something my crazy little brain fixated on. Loki puts forth that the main sacred timeline decreed by the timekeepers is what is supposed to happen with an example given that the Avengers were supposed to time travel and end game. 
So I want to know what the difference, if any, is between this and the 14 million plus realities Doctor Strange explored in Infinity Game and why him even exploring other realities didn't all, all of a sudden create variants that threatened the TVA's multiverse systems. And if Infinity Stones don't even work in the TVA, and we know that the TVA is resetting reality left and right, should we even trust what the stones do in the material world? Well, that's why it's going to be <sighs> hard. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be hard for them to toe that line going forward, right? If you pull on the wrong thread too hard, you'll unravel the whole thing. You know, this is also like a suspension of disbelief for, for us, the, the audience. Right, but at right. the same time, these things are also a little bit meant to be obsessed over. Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, I talked about this at the top. I think I would like more details about the multiversal war and the Miss Minutes sort of tape because I think that that's not only sort of will give us a better understanding of the multiverse <clears throat> as a whole. But if that is a legitimate Secret Wars hands, because if that was and they put the Secret Wars, like this allows them to explore the timeline both ways, right? They can yeah. go forwards, but they can go backwards too. So, you know. And as we've said before on this podcast, like I always felt the Star Wars universe could expand on both accesses where Marvel really was kind of constricted to like, more characters equals bigger expansion. And I don't necessarily think that tracks here. Like you just said, we're starting to get into the open door possibility of something far more encompassing than what that, what their expansion has been thus far. And I like that. Yeah. All right. The time stone that real quick award, AKA rewind that real quick. I set it up top. The TVA tutorial video cartoon was ripped directly from Jurassic park. And it's a fun way to live, deliver clever exposition, but it is a full-on ripoff. I did not know that. I'll I'll have to you go. Got to rewatch Jurassic Park, Jurassic man. Classic film. I have a great one here. Hit me. I have a legitimately great one. So, All right, hi. When, <laughs> when Owen Wilson first takes Loki down that hallway and he shows him the TVA in its full scope, right? And it looked very much like that Star Wars planet, the city one. Uh, Coruscant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Loki, when he realizes what this place is, he goes, this is this place is a nightmare to which Owen says, that's another department. Now that one I'll help you burn down. Now, similar to the Namor thing in yep. Endgame, I find that to be far too specific to just be a random line that happened to find its way. So let's break that down, right? The name check nightmare in and up of itself which of course is a doctor strange villain that some fans had thought would pop up in wandavision could pop up in doctor strange 2 nightmare comes from another dimension which uh, the more bureaucratic version of that word is department you know the <laughs> that's, TVA, that's, true. The, that's the, true the tva is overseeing dimensions but because they're at work they call them departments you know what i mean so and the and then thirdly the fact that he was so quick to be like, oh, fuck those guys. I will burn that shit down with you. Suggest that it's a nefarious, not great place. So I wonder, in addition to all this multiversal timeline stuff, if Loki is going to open some sort of door that he shouldn't to a nightmare realm or something. That is a great call. And, and absolutely, I thought the same when he said that. And I, I just love zooming out a little bit that, the TVA represents perhaps the most heady philosophical universe breaking development in the MCU in terms of what they can do. And yet, despite the futuristic sci-fi, essentially their aesthetic is like mid-century Americana cubicle monotony. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, you know, like Loki sitting at a tiny little desk with his own personal <laughs> computer with a fucking tie and a jacket. It's just so funny to me. And I think that visualization just makes everything more enjoyably hilarious given how grand dense. scheme it yeah. is yes dense yeah so yeah. It, it's just funny it all fits together and i absolutely think dimension department is perfect well i think that 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 contrast is very much on, on yeah on purpose i love it all right put this in odin's vault award ak put that in the museum to me the ability to organically create a beloved fan favorite character that successfully transitions from villain to anti-hero thanks to a mix of dedicated long-range story arcs and perfect casting. Because Eric, if you had told me 10 years ago when I was in the theater watching the first Thor movie that we'd be jazzed up for a TV show starring his greasy-ass brother, 
I don't know what my reaction would have been, but it wouldn't be as exciting and happy and, you know, uh, embracing as it is right now. I mean, 10 years, you, you, you could go back, you know, to Thor, the, the dark world, be like, do you want to see more of this guy? <laughs> um, Loki reliving his life. And then yeah. to that speech that you brought up where he, where he finally cops the fact that like, I don't like to hurt people. It's just what I do for power. That sort of honesty from not just a villain, but a character in general, like being that open about who you really are to get that done with right off the bat, I think is, as I brought up at the top, smart because it brings, it is an abridged version of the character development that Loki went through these last six years. And while it's not quite the same, they have him go through it again in this pilot. And as a result, the character we're left with is a far more compelling one. And more importantly to them, a better lead for a show. Yes. Well said. All, all things agreed. All right. The Cap lifts the hammer award for best hero moment. And I'm going to go with a less obvious one. Mobius's understated, kindly approach to that French girl. It just gives you the entire insight into who his character is and what the TVA could be in terms of a, a force of understanding sympathy. Also, just quickly, I thought that girl might be Joan of Arc, but then I did a little research. Joan of Arc died about a century before that scene takes place. Cause I thought that would have been cool because Joan of Arc claimed to see gods and, and whatnot and angels. Yeah. And I would have been like, oh, a great example of them influencing history. But it, I don't, the timeline doesn't yeah, work out. I did Google what was going on in 1549 France, and I couldn't find much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is sort of just, just to build on the last one. The best hero moment is Loki admitting that he's the villain. Yeah. You know, and, that is... And, uh, I, I think exploring the same side of the coin, hero and villain, is hopefully what what this is going to be about a bit more too right yeah all right so what is the worst thing you can say about this episode eric for me like i said before both wandavision and the falcon the winter soldier had something to say thematically right away still not entirely sure outside of a couple brief snippets what loki wants to say but we have time we're only two episodes into you know essentially a six six act play yeah uh i don't really ha have one here i i thought it was a strong start I, if anything, I want to complain about people complaining about it. <laughs> well, we have a podcast and no one can control what we say. So go for right, it. Right, right. No, but just, you know, uh, I, I thought I have been looking forward to this show the most and for them to live up to that hype. You know, it's great. It's a great feeling. Yeah. Uh, what's the nicest thing you can say about this episode? Eric, for me, like I said up top, it's the most purely entertaining pilot of the fledgling MCU Disney Plus empire and like i say in my review which you can read on observer it is a fun starring vehicle for one of the mcu's most popular characters that has potentially universe changing impl implications and i think it does a great job of mixing the otherworldly matter effect humor of the good place with the vibrant jaunts of men in black and i would just also like to throw in a bit of the craziness of beetlejuice for good measure and that is a mixture that i really enjoyed yeah, I think that this show has the potential to upend the MCU as we know it. And doing that to a 13-year-old behemoth, 20 by the time the next film comes out, 24 film franchise is no, you know, to do that in one show, which seems the course that we're going down. I mean, the, the, the implications on the MCU and then therefore the types of stories that we're going to get out of it going forward are potentially massive. Like not only are they introducing the multiverse to us, but to the characters in that world as well. And what a fucking, what a whirlwind that's <laughs> going to be. You know what I mean? So like, like the genuine moment that, cause you know that they're going to do it. The Spider-Man meme come to life where yes. the, they all point at each other. Like, bro, it, you know, to compare not, where the MCU was five years ago to where it's going to go in these next few is truly a astounding thing. And Unrecognizable. I, yeah, yeah, and I cannot wait. And just beyond that, I just think it's just a well a, a well made show. I think as you've said and as you've said on this pod, and I've said that before, it's 
merging the best of both worlds and of the previous two shows where it's sort of like this mind fuck like Wanda, but it's also this legitimate action product like Falcon was. Yeah. Well, because you know, I think the back half is going to be action packed. It's going to, it's going to be wild. Yeah. All right. Stuff we think is cool that needs mentioning. Mine was Michael Waldron, the showrunner, you know, serving as, is this huge rising Disney voice. So I already uh, said that. So I've got one about him. Uh, Waldron said during the press conference that seven Zodiac and Silence of the Lambs were some of the films that they looked at when they were trying to figure out how to find that crime look. You know, it's just the muted colors and the lighting and all that stuff. And then Mobius, when he is interrogating Loki, is drinking a Jasta which was made by Pepsi and was the first energy drink introduced by a major U.S. beverage company. It was introduced in 1995 and stopped in 1999. Like, as, a, as a man who exists outside of time, why, why Josta? I think that's sort of the joke of it, right? Like they could, the get, they could get access to very like specific, unique things that were at, you know. And the whole night, and I think he... Uh, brings this up in episode two so i won't but there's another he brings up the 90s again (laughs) but um like the whole 90s vibe of it all is you know and the way that it looks like seven and stuff like that there's a very obvious 90s vibe to it that as being born then i'm all about (laughs) yeah we're, we're 90s babies all right well that'll do it for us on episode one we will be doing our weekly deep dives into Loki throughout this entire season. So be sure to stay tuned. Yes, sir. And uh, make sure to follow us for any comments, theories, jokes, memes, whatever at PostCredPod. Please leave us a five-star review. Really helps with our SEO ranking. So seriously, do that. Yes, please do. Like, subscribe, review, enjoy the show. Talk to you all next week. See you guys. I'm going to make him an office guy. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.